and welcome to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things that you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the North Carolina Central University School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. When it comes to the protection of juveniles and children from criminal prosecutions in North Carolina, this state in past years has been rated as being dead last. In recent years, some measurable changes have occurred which are designed to move North Carolina into the modern era. First, in 2020, the age for prosecuting teens as adults in our criminal courts has been increased from 16 to 18. This means that teens who are arrested for criminal conduct are adjudicated in juvenile court rather than automatically being treated as adults. There are instances, of course, where they will still be prosecuted as adults, but the general rule has changed. Second, and just this year, a reluctant General Assembly raised the minimum age for the possible prosecution of children from six to eight. Although many people do not see these changes as being sufficient, they do represent a measure of progressive social policy and are a huge departure from the more conservative stance that legislators have taken in past years. Why and how decisions regarding the age limit for criminal prosecution of children is important is the topic of our discussion this evening. Joining us for that discussion are Dr. Lorraine Taylor, the Executive Director of the NCCU Juvenile Justice Institute, and Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, the Supervising Attorney for the Juvenile Clinic at the NCCU School of Law. So first of all, we want to thank both, both of you for joining with us in our Zoom studio for this discussion. Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. All right. Well, let, let's start this conversation with, uh, with Dr. Taylor. And just for our audience, can you kind of describe uh, the focus and the uh, scope of the work that you do at the NCCU Juvenile Justice Institute? Sure, and, and thanks again for inviting me to join you all today. Um, the Juvenile Justice Institute here at NCCU is the only juvenile justice institute in the state of North Carolina. Um, originally, when it was founded in the, the late 90s, the purpose was to provide information about different topics, different issues happening in the juvenile justice world. Um, this was during a time actually when we didn't have easy access to information through the internet um, the way that we do now. Um, and so the, the focus of our work has shifted somewhat. Um, we concentrate on research and policy related to juvenile justice and, and related issues. And so we work with students, we have grants, we conduct research, and we work closely with our stakeholders at the state level and at the community level um, all around issues of, of juvenile justice. Okay. 
And Professor Harrison Mitchell, we're not going to leave you you out of that because we we know that you do important work at the uh, NCCU School of Law. But for our audience, would you kind of discuss uh, and explain to them the work that you do as a part of the uh, juvenile justice uh, clinic at uh, within uh, the the law school? Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Um, so students who are under my supervision pursuant to the North Carolina rules governing the practical training of law students, uh, which some people re uh, refer to as what we call the third year practice rule, students, law students are able to represent children in juvenile court under my supervision. And so we represent those children that are charged with what would be considered a crime if an adult was charged with it. So anything from... Um, simple possession of marijuana, larceny charges, assault charges, and even, well, I personally have handled um, even a murder case in juvenile court. Of course, my students don't get those most serious offenses, but um, those are the types of cases that could uh, a, a child could find themselves in juvenile delinquency court. And so we provide advocacy for those um, children as well as representation. And I separate those out because I always like to remind students that um, our representation of a child, especially in these kind of cases, is so much more about advocacy outside of the courtroom. It involves so much more advocacy outside of the courtroom than it does just in the courtroom, which a lot of students and a lot of lawyers even think that that's what it's all about. Um, and that really is being in the courtroom with the kid is the culmination of a whole lot more advocacy that happens outside of the courtroom. And so we represent them in those, those cases and provide advocacy for them. Um, which would also include sometimes dealing with school-related issues. So if the child has an individualized education plan or, you know, is subject to suspension from school, we would represent that child in those school suspension matters. We also receive cases um, by referral um, for kids that are being recommended for long-term suspension, even if they don't have a companion juvenile delinquency case. And so we represent and advocate for kids in all those different um, types of cases and matters. And we work with them as a, as a, in their family for um, getting them access to other services and all those different things that they may need as a part of their case. So these are two wonderful programs at North Carolina Central. Can you two talk about the collaboration, if, if you all are able to collaborate, and the support that both um, organizations are able to provide to the other? I'll, I'll start there. Uh, I can actually see the law school um, from our, our windows. Yep. <laughs> we're, we share a parking lot. Um, and just despite us being so close, um, I don't think I've done the best job of, of connecting. Although we have reached out um, and in the past we've had um, Dorothy do a brown bag session. Um, we have a JJI um, brown bag series that we do every semester. Um, and so we were fortunate to have um, Professor Harrison Mitchell come over um, and do a brown bag presentation. That was a few years ago, pre-COVID. Um, we've also connected with Professor Harrison Mitchell, um, just us having discussions. We've gone over to her shop a couple of times um, and we've talked about topics and issues and ways for um, the, the two um, centers to, to connect and collaborate. Um, we did have the privilege, actually, of having one of Dorothy's law school students 
intern with us here at JJI um, a few years ago. So we've we've had some connection, but definitely not as strong of a connection as I would like. And that's due primarily just, just to time and limited resources. Um, but I'm always, always happy um, when I have opportunities to connect with the clinic and particularly with Professor Hairston Mitchell. I would agree with everything Dr. Taylor just said. And I would just add that we haven't had that stronger connection yet because of yeah. all of those different things, just like you said. Um, but I will say, uh, in addition to those things, I, my students, I'm always speaking to them about the work that the Juvenile Justice Institute does and the research that they do. So they are able to look at that work and utilize that research in the work that we do in our advocacy. Um, and so we do that's not really a collaboration, but we appreciate the work and we know we can rely on it and it's good information for us. So my students do um, utilize and access that information that they have. And I, I would add to that, you know, on, on a similar note, um, since working with Professor Harrison Mitchell and some of the other people that are involved in, in the juvenile defense world on the legal side, I have been perhaps your your you know secret cheerleader mm -hmm. for encouraging students. We have a number of our students, um, undergraduate students, as well as some of our, our master's um, students here in criminal justice who are interested in law school. Mm -hmm. When I talk with those students about what their interests are, um, particularly those that are interested in, in young people, juvenile justice, I have planted the seed of careers in juvenile defense. Um, I've talked with them about the clinic. I've talked with them about some of the state level resources that we have in juvenile defense. Um, and, and I've been really advocating, and the students are many of them are not aware of juvenile defense as mm -hmm. type of law career that they might have. And so I'm very happy to encourage students to pursue that. I give them your name mm -hmm. and encourage them to consider this as they are approaching their law school um, training. Well, I'll tell you, Dr. Taylor, it's really not a secret because I've gotten <laughs> some of those students. All awesome. Right. I appreciate that. And I want to add to that, that we you asked about the collaboration um, between the Juvenile Justice Institute and the Juvenile Clinic and the law school. But I want to point out, too, that we have other collaborations um, throughout the university. Um, if our clinic, I actually usually have a master's in social work student that comes and interns with the clinic. And so we my student, my law students are able to get the experience of working with the master's in social work student. Um, they can provide that social work side and you know, connecting with resources and explaining a lot of the resources and the terminology when it comes to that side, the social work side of things. And then the law students are able to provide information and, you know, to the master's of social work student on the advocacy side, the legal side of things and all of that. And it's really been good for us to have that team approach in our clinic work that we do with our clients. So that's been a really um, great and fruitful collaboration as well. Well, you know, I'm 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 like uh, uh, Dean Dawson, uh, very uh, excited that uh, at this uh, university there is this uh, holistic approach uh, that has uh, developed in dealing with uh, juvenile uh, issues, of which a lot of people uh, don't uh, understand or are concerned uh, about until there is some uh, uh, conflict uh, that occurs. But you know, in in my opening uh, uh, statement, I, I mentioned the uh, two recent enactments 
okay. by the uh, General Assembly. One, raising the uh, age for uh, uh, protection for individual uh, teens uh, to uh, 18, and the other, raising the uh, minimum age for criminal prosecution from uh, six uh, to eight, although there was a, a very robust effort yes. uh, to raise it even uh, higher uh, yes. than that. But you you are two uh, professional experts in, uh, in this area. Why are those two enactments uh, important and things that uh, people in our community ought to be uh, aware of, concerned about, and supportive of? So I would say, first off, that what's really important is children should be treated and dealt with as children. And in every other aspect, in every other way, children are children. They're people are considered children or minors until they turn 18. But for all this long-standing time period, when it comes to delinquent behavior, criminal behavior, they've been treated as adults. And so that's number one. They should be treated as children. In juvenile court, like you said, um, you appreciate the holistic approach that we have here on campus and the way we view dealing with children. But that is what happens in juvenile court. There is a holistic approach as well, which is phenomenal because you are looking at what does this child need in order to be a productive member of society for us to what I always call get them on track or get them back on track so that they are doing fruitful things and not delinquent behavior. How can we curb that? What kind of programs and services and things do they need? So it may be that you have a kid, more, not maybe, more often than not, you have a kid that is coming into court. They, yes, they came into court because they had some what was considered delinquent behavior, right? Some offense that they are alleged to have committed. But really what's the root of a lot of the issues that they have is homelessness or lack of food or, you know, they have mental health issues or substance abuse issues or you know, they're, they're unstable housing. They may have housing, but it's unstable. You know, there are issues all there. And so in juvenile court, we're able to address all of those different things, which are not addressed a lot of times, or sometimes not at all in adult court. And so that's number one. They should be treated as the children that they are. And then when you really get to the meat of the raising the minimum age up, and yes, you're right. We had heavy, robust discussions and debate going back and forth. We were really pushing for like 12 the minimum age would be 12. We compromised on pushing for 10 and we got eight. And so um, even with the eight, I want to point out that eight and nine-year-olds is not just every eight and nine. That's the all cases. The eight and nine-year-olds that are alleged to have committed those really severe um, and violent offenses, they're still going to be treat, dealt with at, in juvenile delinquency court. But the other types of offenses, like low misdemeanors, things like that, they will be able to bypass the juvenile court process um, and get like a like a diversion and different things like that. But what I say to that is that, okay, so the big issue that you have is whether the kid is competent. That's always a big question. And it's competency as in one, just what you generally think about when you're dealing with criminal cases, does the client have the capacity to proceed, right? Competency. But when you add on, you have a kid Every kid comes to the table just by the nature of them being a kid, having less capacity or competency than the average person, right? And so you're having to deal with that. So I look at that like, okay, you said, and I say you, as in the legislature, they gave us the eight, nine-year-olds, right? Well, how is it that a kid who may be nine-year-old, nine years old, is accused of having um, committed, say, robbery, right? 
you're saying that they lack the capacity, they, they have the capacity to be adjudicated on a robbery, but they may have also been charged with um, possession of stolen goods, which could be a misdemeanor, right? But you're saying they lack capacity on that, which is, which is the same offense. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, but the, so that's the other big issue is whether or not the kid has capacity to proceed. And I, we are, it's a strong push that that issue can be raised at any point in a kid's um, juvenile delinquency um, case by anybody. So the judge can raise that issue and make that inquiry. The defense attorney, the um, prosecutor, anybody can raise that at any point. And at any point when the kid is deemed to not be competent or they lack capacity to proceed, they can't be adjudicated. They can't, there can't be any dispositions against them. And so that's always a big, big issue. So imagine an eight or nine year old. I mean, we all know eight and nine year olds. We know 16 year olds, 17 year olds that think like a 12 year old or think like a nine year old and they act that way. So it's, that's always the big issue as to whether they should be treated as a kid and then whether or not with them being a kid, they, they have the capacity to proceed. Dr. Taylor? So I, you know, I, I approach this as the developmental psychologist that I am. My, my master's and PhD degrees are in developmental psychology. So I, I can get really wound up talking about this stuff <laughs> because this, mm -hmm. this is where my heart lives. And I, I think, you know, I agree with everything um, Professor Harrison Mitchell just said. Um, I, I would add to it, though, you know, like she said, we don't question whether or not a six-year-old is different from a 15-year-old. I mean, if you look at our school system, we have different grades. Why do we have mm -hmm. grades? Why don't we just send all kids into one big schoolhouse and have everybody learn everything the same? Because we know that developmentally, your age represents something mm -hmm. important. So you don't treat preschoolers the same way you treat middle schoolers. We know that from a cognitive development perspective, from a social development perspective, we know this. We know it from our research. We know it from our practice. We know it from, from all perspectives, from you know, those of us who are parents. We all agree. Um, it's a question, though, that why this seems to be a question of debate within our legal system. Um, and I think the answer to that has much more to do about some other things rather than a lack of understanding about child development. Um, and we should be explicit about what those things are. Um, I don't believe the discussion around raising the age, either the, the upper end or the lower end, is truly about doing what's best for children. It's about appeasing people's political or theoretical perspectives on Black people, yep. youth in particular. And that's why we're having these discussions. That's why it took 100 years for North Carolina to raise the age to 18. Um, it's not because people don't understand where youth are. We've got the science showing us that the adolescent brain is a thing. <laughs> the adolescent brain is not the same as an adult, mature adult brain. So why is it that there seems to be such controversy or concern or room for discussion about this from a legal perspective? When you look at the six and um, seven and eight-year-olds who are in the system, 
um, not just in North Carolina, but, but even more broadly, what do those kids typically look like? They look like me. They look right. like Professor Harrison Mitchell. They look like Irving Joyner. <laughs> you know, it's no secret that race plays an important part in these discussions. Um, and I just think we should be explicit about that. Um, we know that the number of young people that are in the juvenile system has declined recently, and that's good news. Right. So know that black children are becoming even more overrepresented within those, those smaller numbers now. So I think that's where we need to concentrate some of our, our attention today because these things are not accidental. All right, this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and uh, we are talking about uh, expanding the uh, protections and responsibilities for uh, juveniles uh, in uh, North Carolina. Our guests uh, this evening are Dr. Lorraine Taylor, who is the Executive Director of the NCCU Juvenile Justice Institute, and Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, who is the uh, Supervising Attorney for the Juvenile Clinic at North Carolina Central University uh, School of Law. We have to take our break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us and we will be right back to continue uh, this discussion. Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney and here are some facts about juvenile law. North Carolina defines a juvenile as any person under the age of 18 who is not married, emancipated, or in the military. Some juveniles are criminally prosecuted as adults through a process called transfer. At age 13 or over, a juvenile may be transferred to an adult criminal court if a juvenile court judge finds probable cause that the juvenile committed a felony offense and conducts a transfer hearing. Juvenile court is the court system that handles complaints against children who are alleged to be delinquent or undisciplined. Adjudication that a juvenile is delinquent or undisciplined is not a public record and may not be disclosed to the public without a court order. Juveniles afforded many of the same criminal rights that adults have, such as the right to counsel, the right to remain silent, and Fourth and Fifth Amendment protections. However, they do not have the right to trial by a jury. Upon arrest for an act of juvenile delinquency, the juvenile must be immediately advised of his legal rights. The juvenile's parents, guardian, or custodian may also be immediately notified of his arrest, as well as his rights, and of the nature of the alleged offense. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we uh, continue our discussion talking about uh, juveniles and, uh, and children and uh, expanding the uh, legal protections that they have in criminal proceedings here in, uh, in North Carolina. Uh, let me just you know ra raise with... Uh, uh, our two experts uh, here. Uh, what was the holdup in North Carolina becoming one of those states that uh, uh, extended the protections of the juvenile system to uh, teens to 18 and increasing the age limit for criminal prosecution? What was happening in North Carolina that it was always at the bottom of the stack? I think Dr. Taylor just started that discussion off really, really well in the last um, segment. 
Um, that's what was going on. I mean, and it's still going on that we have folks that are just so adamant about that. It's a racial aspect to it, like Dr. Taylor was talking about. But I also think, which they're not going to admit that it's a racial aspect, right? Um, but unfortunately, because they are seeing more black and brown children that are brought into juvenile delinquency court, they see it as this is a way to keep those children in check. Um, and so we want to capture as many more of them as we can in the, in the adult court system. And then the other aspect of it is, is economic. So, I mean, one of the things that I was just thought was just ridiculous was that the statute, the raise the age statute, when it was implemented, before it was even implemented, it included all these provisions for all this funding for the new facilities that needed to be um, built so that we can be able to, uh, and you know, house these juveniles. And so I thought that, you know, before they even implemented the, the statute or raised the age, they made sure to include that and to have that funding, as opposed to having more funding for programs to deter diversion programs and deterrent programs and all of those different things. So it's, you know, it's an economic aspect to it as well. So that would be the short answer to that I have for that. And I, I would underscore that um, people don't mind profiting off of black misery. Um, and it doesn't, mm -hmm. if you're a six or 10 or 12 year old child, um, if there's money to be made off of your misery, people are on that. Um, and I think that is reflected in what we're, what we're talking about today. Um, it's one of those unfortunate realities that we have to deal with. And, you, you know, when we think about who these children are in the system, we do know that black children are overrepresented and we have to think about why that's the case. Many of us understand the socioeconomic factors that impact black families in America and including us here in North Carolina. Poverty rates, um, access to healthcare, access to mental health services, all of those issues, employment, underemployment, um, family struggles, family members who are incarcerated and the impact, all of those things put Black children in difficult circumstances. Um, and that has an impact on Black children's ability to function in a healthy way, to pay attention in school, to focus on what you need to do. Um, and that can lead many kids to end up in trouble and we have a, a very um, uh, eager system that doesn't have a problem receiving children in, into the, the criminal justice system. So if we understand those kinds of factors, our approach to dealing with kids who get in trouble is very different than if we view those same kids from a different perspective, one that doesn't take into account their family situations, their socioeconomic situations, their neighborhood situations. There are some people who believe that Black children are just inherently bad, inherently evil. Um, I, I'm teaching a course on criminal justice theories this semester, and we started off talking about some of these um, medieval perspectives where criminal behavior was viewed as, you know, something that was just evil intent. You got, you know, evil forces that that come into the body and make people act a fool. So 
I don't see a big difference when I hear some people talk about Black children in a vilified way from those medieval perspectives. Now, where does that stuff come from? Why do some people hold those kinds of views? Why is it that they view Black children in a particular way that's inconsistent with how they might view white children and keep exactly. the exact same behaviors? It goes back to some of those deeper beliefs that I just think we as a society we need to challenge that and call those things out, highlight the inconsistencies and get people to acknowledge what their own biases might be when it comes to dealing with black and brown children. Um, and I do think that might be one of the reasons why we've seen some progress recently, because I know at a state level, um, North Carolina has been trying to bring to the forefront the discussion around um, racial biases. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the governors um, got a whole task force on um, racial equity. And so perhaps that answers your question about, you know, why are we seeing these um, changes now, um, these improvements now? Um, although I, I don't know if I would agree that raising the age from six to eight is that big of an improvement, but at least it's a step in the right direction. And if I could add, Dr. Taylor, because that's exactly, I wanted to speak on that racial bias and implicit bias and those things. I'm a strong advocate that legislators, every person in the court system should have to undergo implicit bias training, racial equity training, all of that. And it should inform them. That knowledge should inform how they deal with and do their work and deal with the, the people that come before them, whether you're the judge, whether you're the court counselor, the people in the, you know, the program, the clerk, even in the courtroom, you know, the police officers and legislators so that they are, when they're thinking about and they're entertaining these questions before them and whether or not to implement these new laws and amendments and things, that they, they're informed by that racial bias, racial equity training, implicit bias training, because we are well aware, even in our own culture, you know, there are a lot of people, I've been in the courtroom where if we have a young white male that is coming into the courtroom, people, everybody's looking surprised. You know what I mean? And it's because even they have kind of bought into this whole thing of most of our kids are just going to be the black and brown children. And that's just what we have. And we just need to deal with it. And nobody's doing anything about it. Well, I don't say nobody, not enough people are doing anything about it. Okay. And I think that we really need to be strong advocates for these things, because that's the only way we're going to continue to see change is that people have to look within and realize I do operate with these biases myself and how do I change that and how does it inform the work that I do? Yeah, both of you, oh, go ahead, Dr. Taylor. I was just gonna add to that, you know, there's evidence suggesting that these trainings are helpful and life-changing, but we have to acknowledge that there are people out there who are dead set against these types of trainings being done. Um, and I think that's really unfortunate. I agree. Yeah. So both of you have talked about the, the circumstances that Black children find themselves in, which makes it more um, likely, I should say, to be involved in the juvenile justice system. And you've mentioned, you know, housing issues, poverty, access to health, um, employment of uh, individuals, adults in the household. And we know that the pandemic has just exacerbated these situations. Can you talk about how the pandemic has impacted 
juveniles who already have found themselves in very trying circumstances? Well, one way it's impacted is that they are, they have been, when we were in the heat of COVID, when say we were on shutdown and everyone was home, then you had more time that kids are um, out and having more opportunity to actually be involved in delinquent behavior. So that's one unfortunate side of it, right? Um, you would think automatically that time period would have actually had increased supervision of the children by their parents and things, but it that I don't think the data actually shows that, um, that there was increase. It actually shows a decline in the way the, um, the children are able to do their schoolwork because they were on virtual learning. So there was a heightened level of issues when it comes to school, as far as their learning and whether they're retaining the information and all of that. That heavily impacted our black and brown children. One, because a lot of the children fortunately have been received proper diagnosis and they weren't getting the um, proper resources and, and things as far as their IEP and all of those things when they were at home and under complete virtual learning. So that just exacerbated those issues. Um, but in a lot of ways, it, some kids actually, um, you know, we learn more about the different issues that they have because we were able to, you know, parents were able to see firsthand, more firsthand what's going on with their children. A lot of parents were enlightened by the time period that they were home with their kids. Like, I didn't even know my kids learned this way or couldn't learn this way, or this is how they interacted with their teachers and, you know, different things like that. So that's that's one thing. The other um, major impact was that because of COVID, the, the resources and the programs that the kids would normally be able to participate in, the access was not as great because of COVID. Um, and that's still going on. So a lot of the things are still virtual. Um, the programming is virtual. And that's not necessarily the best way for those programs to be conducted or for the, the kids to have access. Um, and then some of it is you just need a kid being able to have that face-to-face, hands-on interaction with the person. Like, for instance, uh, the PROUD program, which is a um, program for um, our children here in Durham or uh, that where they deal with the kids that are considered um, to be gang involved. And so they deal with those kids there. They need to be in face-to-face with those kids. They need to be able to go out and actually touch them and, and see them and interact and see what's going on in their household and different things like that. You had an increase in domestic violence and increase in substance abuse issues because of, you know, just normal circumstances. But then you add on COVID and people are more depressed and dealing with all those different things. So all of these different things that, that actually were exacerbated. So we had more negative um, effects than you did positive because of COVID. Well, let me let me just raise, raise this issue with you in, in light of uh, the uh, comments that you made. Uh, and that has to do with uh, the responsibilities of the uh, parents uh, in these uh, situations. And does not this uh, crisis within the uh, juvenile justice or injustice uh, process argue for uh, uh, some additional or enhanced attention to the development of parenting skills because discipline uh, seemingly is one of the uh, big issues that result in uh, these juveniles getting caught up one way or another in the uh, this juvenile justice process? So first of all, if the kid is already court involved, so say they've, they've been adjudicated, well, before they even get adjudicated, the parents are under a court order to attend court 
So they are under a separate order to attend court and ensure that the kid is attending services um, and they have to agree to take the kid or not agree. They are ordered to take the kid to all the services and all of those different things. And so the, the kid is under a court order and then the parent is under a separate order. So if the parent is not doing those things, they could be brought into court and show cause and fined and jailed for not doing those different things. So you have you do have that kind of heightened um, level of expectation of the parent. We would most of us think, though, that I mean, these are just things that the parents should do anyway. Right. But then you add on you, some of them actually do need the court order to make sure that they do those different things. Um, but you also have it's kind of a touchy situation sometimes because when you talk about the discipline side of it. So when I hear that word discipline, I you can think of the old school way of looking at it, which is you know, spanking the kid or, you know, doing those, whatever you see as that form of physical discipline, but that's where it gets murky because you don't want to give the, you definitely don't want to tell a parent that it's okay to go and partake in those certain kinds of physical discipline because that could result in other court involvement, like abuse, neglect, dependency cases and all those things. But then the new way of thinking about it or the general way that we want to look at discipline is just making sure that you're holding your kid accountable and that you're supervising them well. And that you're, you know, having them be responsible for their actions and, you know, all those different things. And yes, Professor Jordan, there are lots of times when we want to order the parent. I, as a defense attorney, there are so many times when I want to ask the judge to order the parent to go to a parenting class. Because in my interaction with the parent, I uncover or recognize that there are some things that are lacking. And I'm not saying it in a judgmental way. It is definitely, you know, sometimes it is just like, come on, mom, you shouldn't be talking to your kid that way. Or you're adding to it. I, I can think of a, an example where I, we have a guardian with a young kid that's 14 and he has some serious developmental issues. And every time his guardian speaks, she's talking to him in this negative way. And it's, it's basically setting him off. And then he's getting all irate. And now he's, you know, belligerent and all this stuff. And it causes him to be in this state where it's more likely than not that he might em embark on some kind of negative behavior that could result in delinquency behavior. Where if we could get her some help with that side of it, as, at the same time that we're getting him some help because we know he has ADHD and ADD and all of those, or ODD, you get what I'm saying? Then we can get that, you know, we can work on that all at the same time with both of them. So those are the kind of things that I think you're speaking to. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community event spotlight. Are you looking for something to do in Durham? Check out the Civil Rights Legacy Downtown Durham Walking Tour. This event is held every third Saturday at 10 a.m. from now until November 20th. The tour is a great way to learn about the rich history of African Americans in the city of Durham. You can find more details about this event and register at discoverdurham.com events. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your Community Event Spotlight. Thank you. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. 
I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking about the state of the juvenile justice or injustice system here in North Carolina. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Dr. Lorraine Taylor. She is the executive director of the NCCU Juvenile Justice Institute and Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, the supervising attorney for the juvenile clinic at the NCCU School of Law. So Dr. Taylor, Professor Joyner Irv had had asked a question about the responsibility of the parents in terms of holding children accountable, making sure that these young people have an environment in which they can flourish. Um, Can you share your thoughts on that? Certainly. Um, And I I think it's an interesting question, especially in the context of, of COVID, to think about parental discipline. And what I always encourage is for people to think about how can we support parents? And so rather than focusing on, on, you know, how are you disciplining your children? Ask, how can we support you in your parenting? Um, If you already come from intergenerational family trauma, you may carry some of those um, learned behaviors into your parenting with your own child. So sometimes additional skills or additional supports might be required. Um, Everybody agrees that if a child misbehaves, it's important to respond with an appropriate consequence. That's the discipline side. But we often focus less on other environmental, situational, contextual factors that contribute to a parent's response to a child misbehavior. So if you are a parent, God help you, if you have COVID yourself and you are not able to work or your job just laid you off, oh, and you're about to get evicted too because you know you didn't get any of those um, eviction supports you were supposed to get. If you are not able to respond appropriately to your child's misbehavior, pointing the finger at the parent is not really helpful. We, we really understand where parents are and, and trying to meet them with um, the kinds of supports that might be helpful. Um, I think we we often miss out, we, we fail to acknowledge those important factors um, that often determine how parents respond. Um, as kids navigate childhood, you know, the terrible twos, the terrible teens, <laughs> you know, those are tough times under the best of circumstances. So helping parents navigate that in this COVID era, I think is a really important thing. Um, And the behaviors that we might see, you know, we see the parents who fail to respond appropriately or don't have environments structured to be supportive of children. When we see kids get in trouble, it's easy to kind of blame the parent and point the finger, but just, you know, taking a step back and understanding that from a broader perspective, I think is really important. I think one of the challenges that many families are are dealing with in this this COVID era is that, you know, if children are not in school, that means the home environment must now become home and school and everything else all wrapped into one. And to do that, oh, and if you're working from home, you have to layer that on top of everything else. And that's a real challenge. If the home situation was already unstable, if you are already dealing with housing insecurity, food insecurity, all these other issues, and now you have to provide you know, school care for multiple kids, it's a real hardship. And, and many of us have struggled 
with that through this COVID era. Um, the, the last thing I, I would say about that is, okay, schools are back open now. How do we help children transition back into school, right. particularly kids that already had behavior problems? Um, Dr. Harris, uh, Professor Harrison Mitchell talked about kids that have IEPs. If you had an IEP in school and it wasn't going great, and then school shut down and you were not getting the services that you know the federal government mandates you're supposed to receive, now we're putting the kids back. Is that necessarily going to be an easy transition? Um, you know, kids that don't like school, who are happy to be away from school because of the quarantine, are now back to being in school, sitting in those same classrooms, now with masks on. So mm -hmm. I think over the next months, um, perhaps into the next couple of years, we're likely to see additional fallout from this, this COVID world um, on our kids, particularly on our kids that are already struggling with some behavioral challenges. And I just throw out too that I've been very vigilant about and pushing back on schools who now are trying to add to the things that they bring um, children for violations of school policy being these COVID protocols. Because a lot of um, kids are now getting in trouble in school for not having their mask pulled up on their face or not having a mask on at all and different things like that. And I've been pushing back on those kind of policies because, I mean, this is new for everybody. This is a new way of things for everybody. And you certainly don't want to see an increase of kids getting kicked out of school because they're not able to keep a mask up and they're seven. You know what I mean? Like, and they just, it's just hard for them. So I just wanted to, to throw that out there as well. Well, in, increasingly, uh, a lot of the uh, referrals into the juvenile system seemingly emanates from the schools uh, mm -hmm. with these uh, school uh, resource uh, officers. Oh, gosh. And uh, that is a big complaint that exists in uh, African-American and Latino uh, uh, communities. Uh, how, how do you address uh, this issue? of uh, school resource officers in the face of the uh, many attacks on the uh, school buildings by uh, people who wanted to do harm, uh, what is the uh, solution as it relates to the presence of and usefulness of school resource officers within our school system? Well, I'm not, a, I don't necessarily agree that the presence of them should be there. Um, that's number one for me. Um, I think that we should have an increase of social workers in our schools as opposed to um, resource officers. However, if we're going to have them, which it looks like we're going to have them, because um, there are some needs in some places or in a lot of places, it's like what you said with the increase of these school shootings and different things like that. Since we have to have school resource officers, they should have more training, um, more on the social work side of things. So on mental health training. Um, how to address those different mental health issues or um, situations that come about with children in the school system. Um, resources, connecting the children with resources, as opposed to just seeing everything as delinquent behavior in which they need to bring some kind of petition. And there should be a clear deliation, um, delineation between um, the school policies, meaning the school personnel should create the policy and those things that would constitute violations of school policies and you know um, sanctions and different things like that when it comes to those school policies, as opposed to the police officers or the resource officers being a part of that discussion. It should be a clear line between the two of those, because of course the school resource officers is gonna come from the criminal aspect of it, 
as opposed to the social aspect of it. And so that's that's what I would say first. Um, and I know, Dr. Taylor, you have a whole lot more to say on that, but that that's where I come from on that as far as the school resource officers. Well, the research on SROs, it's something that um, we've actually done some research here at the, the Justice Institute. Um, my, my colleague, Dr. Jonathan Glenn, and I are interested in, in SROs. Um, the research is pretty clear in that SROs don't necessarily enhance the um, school safety aspect of things. Um, there's no clear association between having SROs on campus and an increase in safety. Um, in fact, the studies that have been done show how the presence of SROs in schools often contributes to an unhealthy school climate where students feel policed. Absolutely. Got police in the schools. So that makes sense. And that is not associated with very positive outcomes. Um, people like the idea of SROs in schools that helps us feel better if we know that there's a you know trained law enforcement um, representative in a school. Um, but just understand that that presence is not necessarily connected with the outcomes we might be hoping for. Um, I think there have been a number of really critical innovations and improvements in the training of SROs. Mm -hmm. There are some people who would argue SROs do not belong in schools, period. That, you know, if you need to have enhanced safety in schools, that the schools should determine how that looks rather than bringing in outside criminal justice agents like police or, or sheriff's offices. So, you know, there are there is a hot debate going on right now about whether or not police should even be in the schools. Um, I think there are ways to have the best of both worlds where you can involve local law enforcement in the activity of day-to-day -day school life, but in ways in which roles are clearly defined, just like um, Professor Harrison Mitchell just explained, um, and where you've got MOUs and protocols mm -hmm. clearly establish behaviors. And the behaviors that go on in school between school staff, school administration, students, and, and these SROs, these law enforcement representatives, where the behaviors, the, the, um, the, the work of these groups is monitored so that there is a way to correct if things are getting off track, if it looks like SROs are having a negative impact on school climate or are isolating certain groups of students and it's having a, um, a, a, an, an un- uh, unintended consequence that there are ways to mitigate that. And so I think we've made some progress in terms of um, how SROs function in, in the school environment. Although again, there are many who would debate and argue that schools should not be um, places where we have police. I will tell you too, to add to your question too, Professor Joyner, um, we have the way to decrease those school-based offenses coming into juvenile delinquency court, we have areas like Durham where we have a very progressive district attorney and district attorney's office, which they refuse to prosecute certain offenses that come from schools, that are referred from schools. And so that word has gotten out to the different schools. And so they're forced to deal with those things within the school system because they know that that's just not going to have, um, they're not going to get far on the criminal justice side of things. And not to say that they're all not going to, like every case that comes, a referral that comes from a school is not going to make its way through the juvenile court system. But 
And that's the, our district attorney here in Durham takes that position with children in general, whether they're coming through the juvenile delinquency courtroom or the adult court system. They are, they're taking a heavy look at what is that offense, that referral, why is it coming? What, what is all, what all the facts and details about it? And then they make a, um, a, a decision whether or not that case should even be prosecuted at all. And so um, I think that's a good thing. And it, that's a way to decrease those number of school referrals and enforces them. And with raise the age and with just in general, um, the statute actually has funding implicit in um, our different statutes uh, uh, that, deal, the, that is specifically for other types of school-based programs to deal with these things within the school system and like mediations, um, different like diversion programs within the school system. There's funding for all of that where the school can deal with a lot of these things within the school as opposed to sending it out. Now, we've talked about, you two have talked about the underlying problems that are contributing to the circumstances that are leading to juvenile delinquent behavior. And, and those issues need to be uh, addressed, you know, wholeheartedly by, by the community. Um, and, and notwithstanding these efforts and hopefully increased efforts in these areas, there will be some teenage or juvenile criminal involvement, what are our options to addressing those types of problems and what's the appropriate response when you do have criminal behavior by a juvenile? So first, um, I want to answer this question in this way. So if you have a kid that is, say, 16, 17, um, and they are charged with one of those high-up felonies where it looks like um, they are where it's first, let me back up. There are certain offenses, felony offenses that are considered to be mandatory transfer cases. So when those cases come by their a kid is charged with those types of offenses, like murder, for instance, is one. That's the easiest one to talk about. A murder charge. Once probable cause is found, that case still starts in juvenile delinquency court. But once probable cause is found or a waiver of PC or whatever, that case automatically is transferred to superior court. So that's a mandatory transfer case. You have other types of offenses like class I and below in which those cases are discretionary. And so in those kinds of cases, then it's all about the advocacy, right? It's about the defense attorney advocating on the part of the child to convince the judge to keep that case in juvenile delinquency court. So that's the first approach that I would speak about, right? As far as once it gets into the court system. But even before that, it's about education. It's about, you know, people knowing and us doing things like what you all are doing and having this kind of program where we're telling people and informing people about these different things so that they will know that they're, you know, the kids can become involved in the court system and that even though, because a lot of people hear about, oh, raise the age just meant that all kids up until they're 18 are dealt with in juvenile delinquency court. But that's not exactly 100% clear line like that. So people, parents, kids, everyone needs to know that you still could find yourself in, in adult court and what the ramifications of that, what come, what kind of ramifications come with that and the consequences of that, um, you know, just all those different things. So it's about, I, I think it's more about the education on the front end to let people know all about what those things are so that they can avoid that kind of behavior and avoid um, associations with people who participate. It's just the kind of general things that as a parent, we would hope to equip parents with that knowledge. So therefore they can utilize that in their parenting and their conversations that they're having with their kids 
But at the same time, we might have to push into the schools and actually talk to the students about all these different things. And we do those things um, in our clinic where we push into the schools and we talk to kids about different types of offenses and what the elements are for these different things and how these kind of everyday things they may do, they may not realize could result in um, them coming into juvenile delinquency court or even adult court. And they, you know, just the everyday kind of things of that. So I think that's that's the bigger way to look at it. All right. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, Professor Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, the supervising attorney for the Juvenile Clinic here at NCCU School of Law, and Dr. Lorraine Taylor, the executive director of the NCCU Juvenile Justice Institute. We'd like to also thank you for taking time out of your Sunday evening and listening to the show. We hope you have enjoyed it and that you've learned something and that you'll take this information and share it with your friends, family, and community. This is an incredibly important issue. Uh, The problem with our juvenile justice system and, and the circumstances that our young people find themselves in cannot be solved. Uh, through just one way, one means. We all have to come together and address this issue. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. If you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.